Lesson 11 for March 5 to 11, Peter on the Great Controversy. Sabbath afternoon, March 5. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this series of lessons which shows us more of your grace and your love than we expected as we looked at the great controversy. And Lord, as we this week study what Peter has to say, we just want to thank you for what Paul said last week and what we've learnt through all these lessons. We pray that your Holy Spirit will be with us. Guide us as we open your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Let's read that again, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Peter's writings abound with the great controversy theme. Maybe that's because he knew for himself better than most how easy it is to fall for Satan's deceptions. Thus, he was keenly aware of how real the struggle is. After all, it was Peter who wrote, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. 1 Peter 5.8 Peter sees the struggle unfolding in various ways. He sees a struggle going on in the church, which includes those who once fellowship with the believers, but who are now cynical and dismissive of God and of any thought of Christ's return. He speaks strongly and powerfully against the scoffers because if faith in the promise of Christ's return were to be lost, what hope remains? Again, maybe Peter affirms faith so positively because of his own failures. He knows what it is like to scoff and deny and try to fit in with the crowd so that others would not condemn him for being a follower of Jesus. Hence his emphasis on how crucial it is for believers to live a life reflective and worthy of their high calling and election in the Lord. Sunday, March 6. Darkness to Light. Question. Read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. How is the great controversy seen in these two verses? 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. These verses come from Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, and from Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, also repeated in Deuteronomy 14, verse 2, a holy people, chosen to be a people for himself, and a special treasure. 
These assurances were, of course, given during the Exodus when God's people were being released from slavery and on the way to the Promised Land. Peter sees a parallel between the people of God during the Exodus and the church in his day. Thus, Peter's words are not a description of the end product, but rather of a work in progress. Yes, we have been chosen and elected by him, and we are to publicly praise God for bringing us out of the darkness that Satan has engulfed the world in. But that doesn't make us perfect or mean that we have somehow arrived, as we read in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 12. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on, that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. On the contrary, awareness of our own sinfulness and shortcomings is a crucial aspect of what it means to follow Jesus and to sense our need for his righteousness in our own lives. As Ellen White writes in Desire of Ages, page 317, It is thus that every sinner may come to Christ, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, Titus 3.5. When Satan tells you that you are a sinner and cannot hope to receive blessing from God, tell him that Christ came into the world to save sinners. We have nothing to recommend us to God, but the plea that we may urge now and ever is our utterly helpless condition that makes his redeeming power a necessity. Renouncing all self-dependence, we may look to the cross of Calvary and say, In my hand no price I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. End of quote. One sure way we know that we have been called out of darkness into his marvellous light is our awareness of just how dependent we are upon Christ, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness and redemption, as it says in 1 Corinthians 1.30. And so, to finish today, What goes through your head when you feel overwhelmed and discouraged by your deeds and even your own character? How do you deal with those thoughts when they come? How can you turn these times to your own spiritual advantage? Monday, March 7, Peer Pressure Question. Read 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through to 7. Why are our lifestyle choices important, and how do they affect our readiness for Christ's return? 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in the lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason... 
the gospel was preached also to those who were dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Peter comments that believers have already spent enough of their lives doing what others around them pressured them to do, in verse 3. But now things have changed, and believers may be thought strange for not joining the crowd, possibly resulting in malicious gossip being spread about them, verse 4. Thus, Satan will ever use former friends to try to discourage us in our walk with God. Peter encourages believers not to be intimidated by these assaults. The Gentiles will need to give an account of themselves to God, who alone is judge. So there is no need to worry about what they think, according to verse 5. His point is crucial. How many people do you know who have buckled under the pressure of other people's expectations, rather than standing up for what they believe? This is especially tough on young people who struggle with what is known as peer pressure. Instead of us being concerned about being accepted by others and conforming to their opinions and their demands and their expectations of us, Peter admonishes believers to be kind and loving to those we come in contact with. We read about that in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. And above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. This is not just an added extra. Some additional duty we may fit into our Christian to-do list. Rather, it is the most important thing we do and the most important way of interacting with people around us. Maybe that is why Peter suggests that we need to get serious in our prayers in verse 7. Because God knows that sometimes we may be more serious about pleasing the Gentiles than relating lovingly and kindly to those close to us. We need to pray not only for them, but also that we would allow God to make us more sensitive to their concerns. As a royal generation and a holy priesthood, we are called to influence them for the good, as opposed to allowing them to influence us for the bad. The tragic history of Israel was just that. The pagans, instead of being influenced for good for Israel, influenced Israel for evil. And so to finish today, what kind of peer pressures do you face? How can you resist? In what ways are the words overcome evil with good in Romans 12.21 so appropriate in such situations? Tuesday, March 8, The More Sure Word of Prophecy Question. Read Second Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 21. What is Peter saying about prophecy that is so important? Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 16. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honour and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice, which came from heaven, when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed, as a light that shines in a dark place, until the day dawns, and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke, as they were moved, by the Holy Spirit. Peter had seen many things in his time, and he lists some in this passage. Jesus transfigured on the mount in verse 18, and the confirmation of the prophecies concerning Jesus in verse 19. Each of these had impacted Peter deeply, yet he spends more time on the last point, the prophecies. This may have something to do with his own failures as a disciple. How many times had Peter not listened to what Jesus was saying because he thought he already knew what was being said? How many times did Jesus foretell his coming treatment at the hands of the chief priests in Jerusalem? Yet, when things happened exactly as Jesus had said on a number of separate occasions, Peter was caught unprepared. Probably the most painful of all these failures was when Jesus predicted that Peter would deny him. Peter was so sure that could never happen, but when it did, it must have been the lowest point in his life. Maybe this is why Peter sets out to clarify how to be a faithful follower of Jesus. He reminds the followers of exceedingly great and precious promises through which they may be partakers of the divine nature as opposed to those who are imprisoned by the corruption that is in the world through lust. That's 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 4. To ensure that the believers have indeed escaped the corruption, he lists a number of interconnected qualities that define the Christian lifestyle. Faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. And that's 2 Peter 1 verses 5 to 8. Each builds on the other and together they form a complete unit, like ingredients in a cake. Paul calls these same qualities fruit rather than fruits in Galatians chapter 5 verses 22 and 23 because they form a unit that cannot be separated. Peter goes further by saying that the believers would not stumble if they made these values part of their lives and asks them to diligently make their calling and election sure in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10. Remember that Peter is addressing his epistle to Christian members established in the faith. He is by no means suggesting that conforming to a special set of requirements will ensure a ticket into heaven. He is simply contrasting the prevailing attitudes and behaviours of the time and challenging Christians to spend their energies on positive things rather than negative ones. Wednesday, March 9, Scoffers Question. Read Second Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through to 7. What is Peter saying here about the past that can help us deal with issues in the present 
as well as in the future. Well, let's have a look. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 3. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. The battle between light and darkness, between the followers of Jesus and the promoters of evil, seems about to reach its climax. The devil, as a hungry, roaring lion looking for its next meal, as in 1 Peter 5.8, is aided by a chorus of mockers or scoffers. With their rational and scientific arguments in verses 3 and 4, these scoffers try to neutralize the faith of believers. Peter suggests that what motivates them is their desire to maintain their lustful lifestyle in verse 3. Jude 18 tells us how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. They reason that Jesus is not coming because everything just keeps going on as it always has. There is one very disturbing feature about this mockery, Jesus said. I will come again, in John 14, verses 1 to 3. But these scoffers are saying, in effect, Jesus will not come again, in Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 4. This is an echo from Eden where God said of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you surely shall die. Genesis 2.17 However, Satan through the serpent said, you will not surely die in Genesis 3.4. Here is a direct contradiction of the word of God, now repeated by not just one voice, as in the garden, but by a chorus of voices everywhere. One redeeming feature of this lie is that Peter predicted it. Every time we hear someone scoffing at the idea of Jesus coming again, they themselves become another fulfilment of prophecy. Although history has witnessed the previous destruction of the earth by a catastrophic flood, the scoffers don't want to know about that. They do not want to admit that God has anything to do with their personal life choices. They also want to avoid the fact that the same God who stored up water to flood the earth has similarly stored up fire to sweep over the earth to destroy it on the great judgment day. 2 Peter 3 verses 5 to 7 Their mistaken hope is that nature will just keep on going as it always has. And so to finish today... How do we, as the years go by, hold on to the promise of the second coming? Why is it crucial that we do? Thursday, March 10, Hastening the Day Although the wait for the second coming seems never-ending to us, the time is not a concern to God. 
as it says in Second Peter 3.8, with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Throughout the scriptures the end is always close, whether the day of the Lord in the Old Testament or the return of Christ in the New. Question. Read Second Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through to 14. What is the long-term hope we are given here? And also look at Daniel chapter 2, verses 34, 35 and 44. Let's begin with Second Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through to 14. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved... What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hasting to the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot, and blameless. And then, let's compare that with Daniel chapter 2, verses 34, 35, and 44. 34. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image of it on its feet of iron and clay, and broke them in pieces. Verse 35. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together, and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away, so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And verse 44, And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. The classic time prophecies clearly tell us that there is a limit to how long evil is allowed to continue and how long God will wait. In the prophecies, God outlines his strategy to end sin and suffering and to restore the earth to its original perfection. How we view the end of all things as we know it will affect how we live now, as we read in verse 12 of Second Peter 3. If we rebel at the idea of God disturbing our little world, then we will tend to be cynical and join the scoffers. If, on the other hand, we see this as a merciful God finally stepping in to clean up the abominable corruption and human rights abuses so rampant around us, then we can with confidence, as it says in verse 13, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Again, Peter voices his concern about our attitudes and personal conduct. He encourages us to be diligent and to be without spot and blameless in verse 14. If it was not for the next verse, we may think that Peter is promoting a works religion, but he corrects this possible misunderstanding with the phrase, The long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. 
confirming the words of Paul to the believers. Being blameless is our aim. That is how Job was described, blameless, because, as it says in Job 1.1, he feared God and shunned evil. That is how Christ will present us to the Father, as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 8. Let's have a look at that. Who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, and also in Colossians 1.22, in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. And First Thessalonians 3.13, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. And First Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Being without spot, that's what the sacrificial lamb had to be. For example, we read about that in Exodus 12, verse 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And Leviticus chapter 1 and verse 3. If his offering is a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. And it was what Jesus was, as we read in Hebrews 9.14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And First Peter 1.19, But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And how he presents the church to the Father in Ephesians 5.27. So to finish the day, in our quest to overcome sin, to grow in faith and to shun evil and live holy and blameless lives, why must we always rely on the righteousness of Jesus that is credited to us by faith? What happens when we take our eyes off that promise? Friday, March 11. Peter warned that scoffers would say, Everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 4. This was nothing new. The same sentiments were expressed before the flood. As time passed by, we read in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 97, With no apparent change in nature, men whose hearts had at times trembled with fear began to be reassured. They reasoned, as many now, that nature is above the God of nature, and that her laws are so firmly established that God himself could not change them, reasoning that if the message of Noah were correct, nature would be turned out of her course, they made that message in the minds of the world a delusion, a grand deception. They manifested their contempt for the warning of God by doing just as they had done before the warning was given. They asserted that if there were any truth in what Noah had said, 
The men of renown, the wise, the prudent, the great men, would understand the matter. End of quote. Today, the great men tell us something similar. The laws of nature are fixed and set, and all things continue as before. In a sense, that's what the theory of evolution teaches. Life occurred through natural processes that can be explained, at least in principle, through the operation of natural laws that one day science will fully explain to us, and all without any word of deity. The great men were wrong then, and they are wrong now as well. No wonder Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 3.19, For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. It was in the time of the flood, it was in Peter's time, and it is in ours as well. And that brings us to our two discussion questions for this week. One, despite all the reasons Peter had to believe in Jesus, he still emphasised the sure word of prophecy. Why is prophecy so important to us? How did prophecy help prove that Jesus was the Messiah at his first coming? What hope does it give us for the second coming? After all, without prophecy, how could we even know about the promise and hope of the second coming? And two, we tend to think of peer pressure only in the context of teenagers and young adults. But that's not correct, is it? We all want to be liked and accepted by our peers. After all, we have a much better opportunity to be a good witness if they like us as opposed to if they don't, right? In our desire to be pleasing to others, how can we guard against compromising our beliefs? Why are such compromises easier to make than we might be inclined to think? Inside Story Our mission story for this week is titled From Broken Promises to New Life, Part 1 When Francisco was a child, his father took him to bars and to other places a child should never go. Once, when Francisco didn't want to go with his father, the man held a gun to his head. When Francisco was fourteen, his father died, but the abuse the boy had suffered left deep scars. He began drinking and taking drugs to help him forget the pain. His mother and sisters began attending the Seventh-day Adventist church, but Francisco was too drunk to notice. By the time he was eighteen, he was living with his girlfriend, Needy, and her mother. He worked on oil rigs when he was sober. When Francisco learned that Needy was pregnant, he was happy, but... His new role had little influence on his life. Sometimes he beat Needy, as he had seen his father beat his mother. One day he beat her hard enough to cause her to lose the baby. When he realised what he had done, he rushed to the hospital to see her. On the way he prayed that God would help him to get off drugs and alcohol. He promised Needy that he would change and treat her better. Needy believed him. But nothing changed. The next time he beat her, she told him to leave that she never wanted to see him again. Francisco came to see her every day and promised that things would change. Eventually, she took him back. Things did change. Francisco sank more deeply into drugs. One day, he almost died from an overdose. He awoke in the hospital. Needy told him to never come home. Francisco knew she meant it, and he sank deeper into depression. 
One of his sisters brought him a religious book to read. One night, when he couldn't sleep, he picked up the book and started reading. Once more he prayed that God would release him from the bondage of drugs. When he opened his eyes, Francisco saw a tall man dressed in brilliant white standing near his bed. The man touched Francisco's forehead. It seemed that the touch penetrated to the depths of his mind. Francisco lay still for several moments, then he realized the being was gone. He sat up in bed, still able to feel the pressure on his forehead. For the first time in his life, he felt peace and hope. Moments later, his mother walked into the room. He told her that God had touched him and had taken away the desire for drugs and alcohol. I'm a new man, he told her. I'm a child of God. I want to go to church. But his mother had seen him break his promises too many times. You make promises, but you don't change, she told him. Francisco knew that she was right. He thought how deeply he had hurt her, but he was sure that this time was different. He convinced her to return the next day and take him to church with her. And this story is to be continued in next week's Inside Story. This week's lesson has been read by Dr. Percy Harold in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired. It is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department and through the services of Hope Channel. Remember, God is always faithful.